Welcome everybody to another episode of Never Stay Dead, where we seem to be obsessed by the X-Men. I, by my count, this is either our fifth or sixth episode where we talk about the X-Men in one form or another. Is that? Yes. So I am Damien, and I'm joined by my magnificent buddy, Matt. Yeah, puzzled right now. I like. I remember us talking a bit about Hoxpox, and then I'm trying to remember. We did Hoxpox. We did the Neil Adams X Men. We did. Oh, right, right. Um, X Men Grand Design. Grand Design. X Men Grand Design. It was your choice. Grand Design. That was that thing by Ed Piscor that covered all oh, of right, X Men right, history. Right, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that would then. That's three. Oof. I could have sworn there was another one. <laughs> My dementia's setting in. But maybe so. Maybe this is just our fourth time talking about the X Men. So, so this time it was my idea, after my previous X Men idea being a total uh, belly flop for Matt, but I still enjoyed it a lot reading the uh, Roy Thomas, uh, Neil Adams X Men, and that just had me obsessed with well, what came next? Which is the well, the very first issue is Len Wein, and then it's the uh, Chris Claremont X Men when they revived they brought brought us the new what do we call these the new x-men the um at the time it was the new x-men since then that's become like an actual like on the cover title um right so it's confuses things it's the yeah it's x-men it's confusing it's it's the x-men second wave which still in a sense is rolling the wave is still going Um, everything is is built somehow on these books the next generation, the real start of the X-Men. There's something really funny to me, though, coming back to this now. Yes. Because this is giant size X-Men number one. And for the longest time, I thought it was because, you know, this is a big start, a new a rebirth for the X-Men, basically. Right. You know, they're coming off this weird reprint status and there's all these new characters. And it was this big deal in my mind. I didn't realize that there was just like giant size Marvel, giant size Spider Man's, giant size Avengers, oh, or whatever. Right, I didn't right. know those existed. This was a period. So let let's just back up and say for those uh, listening that we are going to cover giant size X Men and then X Men ninety four through ninety eight. I think it is the first f- five, or maybe the first uh, eight issues. Maybe we'll go to a hundred. Um, so the first. A chunk of issues from this revived X-Men. So at this time, Marvel was doing a whole series of giant-sized comics because uh, throughout the 70s, uh, comics were rapidly losing sales on the newsstands, and one of the perceived issues was comics had too low of a profit margin. So they tried to do more expensive comics. DC did the same thing in their own fashion. So there was, at some point in the mid-70s, there was this huge spate of giant-sized comics, giant-sized Spider-Man, Conan, Dracula, what have you. And they planned to do an ongoing giant-sized X-Men originally, but they only ended up doing this one issue. Uh, it's not clear It's funny why. you say Dracula, because the first uh, Spider-Man giant-sized had Dracula in it, and they kind of were on the same ship, but never actually fully met. Oh, that's It's a funny. super weird comic. Yeah. I think it's because Dracula was a big selling comic at the time and they just wanted to help juice sales for everybody. 
again, I know this now, but it's so funny to me because for the longest time, the idea that Dracula was in the Marvel Universe was this weird oddity to right. me of the past. I didn't yeah. realize it was a whole run, a whole deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you thought it was like a one time he happens to show up in a Spider-Man comic. Well, I knew it was here and there. And I knew, I knew for the longest time, the first time I heard about Dracula in um, Marvel was with the X-Men, with Storm. Uh, so it's an annual number three or four i think uh-huh. um she possess or she dracula possesses storm and so she becomes one of dracula's um what's the word i don't know but she's a subject of dracula and then they deal with that succubi or something like that it's kind of a disturbing I, I thought succubus was a different thing in any case yeah i mean dracula had a 70 issue run and it well, at least critically, it was one of the most beloved of Marvel's horror comics. And they constantly had him cross over with, I'm not sure if he crossed over with Howard the Duck or not, but just about everybody else, they maybe even to. Howard the Duck. <laughs> you know, that's funny, because I heard it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, as you uh, will find out next time you visit me, and I hit you over the head with a uh, artist edition of Giant Size. Or not, of Dracula, Tomb of Dracula. I and I have crime. some Tomb of Dracula original art, so you can tell I thought it sucked. All right. But that's, we're way in the weeds now. So yeah, it is confusing looking back. There's this one special issue of the X-Men. I was just going to ask, do you know if there was like a giant size 2 X-Men? I believe there was a giant size 2 X-Men that had reprints, because at some point they decided uh, okay. to take the story that that uh, um, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum had already been working on and split it in half and put it in the first two issues of the 94 and 95 are originally Giant Size X-Men number two. Oh, that's weird. And so I think what happened, I'm guessing, because if you, if you look that... at 94, it says plot and 95 say they're plotted by Len Wein. And if you remember the Marvel method of the 60s and 70s, someone came up with a plot, gave it to the artist, the artist drew it, then usually the same person, but not always, someone came and added the dialogue and made the story make full sense. So Chris Claremont, I presume, was just coming in after it was all drawn and writing the dialogue of those first two issues. That's so funny, because I was going to say, it didn't really feel kind of like, like any vestige of what I remember of Claremont until we started getting to, like, 96. So You're uh, you're very astute, then, without even knowing it. Well, without looking at the credits clearly <laughs> enough, I guess, but... Uh, yeah. Well, and it's confusing. I mean, it's possible, because I've read Chris Claremont saying that he was, he was working as an assistant to Len Wein, and he was there at the plotting sessions in the office with Cockrum and, and Len Wein, so... He may have had some involvement in the plotting, but they don't give him plotting credit, just uh, scripting credit. But this was his first gig, right? I don't think so, but I don't know. I haven't researched what was the very first comic he wrote. But he was, back then, your route to becoming a writer was to work in the office and eventually get your shot at writing various things. So I think he'd been writing things here and there, and this might have been one of his first regular gigs. But I really, I haven't looked into that at all. Because he wrote a lot of comics in the 70s, not just the X. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, once you get to the 80s, it was like all X-Men. For instance, he was writing Iron Fist and he was writing Ms. Marvel. Maybe all of that came after Giant Size X-Men. Or after I mean, X-Men. he wrote some of that, but it's usually like an issue here or there. It wasn't like a run. I'd have to go back and look. There are short runs, but I think he was... I, I recall reading a Marvel team-ups by him, but again, I don't know. Mm-hmm. He did have a stint on a Marvel team-up for a while, which is fun, because that's the only real Spider-Man he ever did. But with, like, Iron Fist, like, I think it was in Marvel premiere when it took them, like, six issues to get through the full extended amount of Iron Fist's origin. Claremont only wrote, like, two issues of that. Wow. That's funny, because I associate him and De- John Byrne with Iron Fist, and I thought that's how John Byrne ended up on the X-Men later, because he'd already worked with Cockrum. Yeah, I mean, it's that very well could have been, but it wasn't like a long time. It's only a handful of issues. Well, you know, people like to think that big, long, um, that I'm typing while while talking. People like to think that big, long uh, runs were common in the 70s, but I think there was a huge amount of musical chairs, and the, especially in the writing positions, often the artist would stay a lot longer than the writers. And there's only a, flute, a yeah. few writers that actually had uh, long long runs in the 70s. But that's also kind of symptomatic of the thing itself, right? Like, once you're in it and you're on a long run, that's great. But, I mean, then you're taking up, you know, however many issues, like 30 issues over three years or whatever it is. But if you're jumping around for a bit, you're going to jump around across all these books. And so that's going to be the status quo for most, most people until they find their groove or whatever. So according to Wikipedia, Claremont's first professional scripting assignment, whatever that means, because that could be plot and script or just the script, was right. Daredevil and Black Widow 102 in 1973. Wow. Um, and then his first regular comics writing was Iron Fist in Marvel Premiere. Uh, starting in issue 23 in 1975. So that's two years later. Um, He was joined two issues later by artist John Byrne. The Claremont Byrne team continued to work together on the character um, for 15 issues, it looked like. Yeah. Um, That's weird. I definitely noticed other people. And he must have written Giant Size Fantastic Four in February of 1975. Yep, um, I'm seeing that Madrox, so which is crazy, right? Because that's one of my favorite characters, and I didn't know he actually created him too. And was he a mutant at first? A lot of characters will not. I mean, I have nothing, no idea, because I haven't read the first appearance of Madrox in so long. But a lot of characters will not be mutants at first, and then later we'll find out they're mutants. I mean, if they're not really going over the origin, I guess it's an easy way to kind of sidestep it. I remember in an interview, Stan Lee. Anyway, so he'd been writing a bit here, but this this was not... The other thing to remember um, is X-Men was not a big gig. There was, there was talk about making an international group that would sell better to the international markets, and that's why they, they made up this version of the X-Men. And uh, and they had Dave Cockrum, who apparently had designed a lot of characters before that he was going to use at the Legion of Superheroes, and they didn't want them, and he left DC. There's your favorite group again. The Legion of Superheroes is closely tied yeah, to the X-Men. The rejects from the Legion suddenly become 
great heroes <laughs> remember the world around elsewhere. They just have to be let loose of right. the clutches of Bouncing Boy and Super Lad. Clearly DC whatever. made a mistake not taking up Dave Cochran on his offer of characters like Nightcrawler. And I think there's another character who isn't Storm, but has the same costume. And um, I don't there know. There's a few the characters that kind Maybe of like had Storms. Yeah. But was it just the designs of the characters? I think some were designs and some were um, a, a little more than the design, like some powers, ideas and stuff. I'm not clear. It would be great yeah. to have kind of a, one of those books that like each chapter tells you everything you need to know about every X-Men book. But maybe that's such a thing. You know, exists. I actually might own that book and it might be <laughs> sitting on that shelf right behind me. I just haven't poured through all of it yet. Uh, there's a book I have that's just interviews with like uh, X-Men creators. Right. So maybe I should. Yeah, because I'd love to, the annotations of all the characters would be great to have. Yeah. Um, Especially this group. I mean, what a what a swing and a hit you yeah. know like but if you look at them like on the f- splash page let me go on the splash page of the first their first appearance oops this okay. is <laughs> there we go oh, ads um, okay here we go they kind of look a bit like the legion of superheroes each with their own garish outfit and um you know that they have that Legion of Superheroes vibe to me. Uh, hate to rub just, it in, but <laughs> well, I just don't see it. But I, I don't know. Right. Um, and then, of course, later in issues that we're not covering today, um, there's the Shi'ar. What are they called? The Royal Guard. The yeah, which are really a take. They really are Cockrum redoing the Legion of Superheroes. There's a lot well, of one-to-one characters there. <laughs> That helps make a lot of sense to me because I thought it was so bizarre that you get X-Men and this whole mutants thing and then they're like, Star Wars, you know, like, what? (laughs) Well, Star Star Wars was another best-selling comic at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, well, was Star Wars out actually when Claremont, I think it's, which issue? It's it's like in... um, Sounds right to me. There's one issue where, oh, the first issue where they sort of start showing the Shi'ar without saying who they are is issue number 97. What year was that? So as I was saying, this was not a big deal. It was one of many giant size they threw out there. And when they revived it as a, as a regular ongoing comic, they made it bi-monthly. So it only came out six times a year. What was the space between Giant Size X-Men 1 and 94? Unfortunately, the table of contents in my omnibus doesn't give a date for Giant Size X-Men number 1. 94 came out in seven is August of 75. Okay. And then um, the first appearance of the Shi'ar, un, the unnamed Shi'ar, uh, was in... February of ninety of seventy six. I don't think Star Wars was out then. I can't. They might have. Star Wars might have just been out. I'm not sure. So Giant Size says it was wait May seventy five. So like three months. That's space. Three months. Yeah, it was some time. They were thinking about it in the bullpen. What to do with the X Men? Yeah. So. 
I I gotta say, Beast looks weird there. Uh, what are you looking at in the the splash page? Yeah, yeah, he looks very weird. Dave Cop. So <clears throat> Dave Cockrum is the artist on all the issues we're talking about, and he's obviously a pivotal player in the early creation. But he's an odd artist. Sometimes he draws beautifully, and sometimes he draws ugly. It, it, or at least that's my take on him. And it can vary from panel to panel. There's these beautiful splash pages and then these horrible ones. Or in this case, most of these characters are drawn well, but Beast looks really bad. So does Iceman, kind of. But Beast in particular. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, we get the second look of Wolverine already. Yeah, I can't... So what did he... How has he changed from his Hulk appearances? In the Hulk appearance, he has like these really thin... Um, uh, Guess flares, flares around his eyes that come, and they have more head. of like the whisker look. Um, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, right. and I swear his claws are shorter in uh, in Hulk. And I find throughout all the issues we've read, they never define Wolverine's powers or what about him as a mutant. They don't really. I don't feel like they do that until they actually. Claremont sits down basically makes Wolverine the protagonist of X-Men for the most part which he was for a few years basically once they kick Cyclops the curb for a while which is kind of even weirder to me now having read these issues preceding it yeah well so let me just really try to quickly go over the plot or the basic structure of Giant Size X-Men then we can give more opinions on it but basically, it, it starts with a gathering of the heroes. We see each hero uh, for a certain amount of space. Most people maybe get a page or a little less. But Nightcrawler gets three pages, and that's probably the best introduction of any of the characters. And Or, sorry, that's my opinion. Um, he gets three pages, then Wolverine gets uh, two pages. Storm gets maybe a... Oh, uh, Banshee who is supposed to be older, I guess, than the others, he gets two panels. He's recruited in two panels. So each one, Professor X appears to them and says, come join me. I We've got to save the world together. And plus, I can teach you things. And then uh, Storm has a very kind of visually cool, but with little explanation of who she is thing, where Professor Xavier shows up and she says, all right, I'll come with you. Then Sunfire gets a few panels and he basically just seems really angry. You require help that only I may give. So I owe you nothing professor, but perhaps I owe something to myself. Perhaps it's time once more for the world to hear from Sunfire. And then he comes. He reminds me of early Quicksilver. Yes. Cause Quicksilver was such an angry, pissed off character all the time. I always liked that about him. And then uh, Peter Rasputin, is that his name, last name, Rasputin? Uh, yeah. Colossus gets recruited. It seemed particularly dicey to me why he would go off with Professor X from a Russian commune. but They addressed that in 50 or so issues. <laughs> okay. Um, and then Thunderbird is recruited, uh, and he is established as this very angry character as uh, native americans might have a right to be um <laughs> you just think everyone's so mad <laughs> i think that's a good thing um but for a story 
but he decides um, he wants to come along to prove himself, I guess. I got more cocky from him than angry, I guess. Okay. You can and- stuff a cactus, Custer. The white man needs me? That's tough. I owe him nothing but the grief he's given my people. That's where I got the anger from. I mean, that's fair. He is I, cocky also. Yeah, well, we'll and, see that in a couple yes, issues. we will see the cockiness. And then, and then in chapter two, the splash page. This isn't, because uh, I know it's the first appearance for a number of these characters, but it's not, this isn't Banshee's first appearance, right? No, Banshee appeared in, I don't, I, I think in yeah. the early X-Men, the 20s or so. I don't know if he was identified as a, as a mutant or not. And he was uh, like hypnotized by another bad guy and he attacked the X-Men. But at the end of the issue, we found out he was being brain controlled and he and Professor X were going to work together. And I don't know if that was ever followed up on. I couldn't find a follow up. Well, here we are. Well, yes. (laughs) So um, I really liked of all of these in this first issue, it, it feels like Nightcrawler is the standout. I mean, Storm should be, and I know she will be as time goes on. But I mean, Nightcrawler's a big one, and I agree with you. I thought Colossus's, I mean, worked pretty well uh-huh. for me. Um, I guess, yeah, that didn't work as well for me. Um, I mean, he certainly is a cool character on a visual level that he turns into solid steel or whatever it is he turns into. Uh, Thunderbird and Wolverine's powers are vague well wasn't wolverine's more defined than hulk so that maybe they didn't feel the need to i suppose so i need to go back and read those hulks um i feel so bitter about that having owned those issues as a kid and lost them but (laughs) because i could be you know a billionaire um the weird thing about actually going back to wolverine the weird thing about wolverine is he just says "Ah, i'm gonna stop working for the the whatever the army or the secret service in canada goodbye here i cut up your shirt and i'm gone and he says oh it it beats just sitting around here waiting for my next mission that i don't know it's there's a lot of this to me that is just child the childlike logic of less sophisticated comics that allows these characters particularly wolverine as, as for me a very strong case This doesn't really make sense from an adult point of view of how the world works. I I think it's telling that they went back to most of these characters to basically this point and made a bigger issue about every one of them later. Uh, So I I don't think you're wrong, but I also feel like without this more childish moment here getting to it, we maybe would have never gotten there. It's kind of it's kind of that balance right len ween is just getting things done this is what you do in the comics you got to gather the heroes and introduce them and so this was a quick and dirty way and we've seen it time and time again a a leader who goes around and appears to different people and says come join me in my group so i i wasn't horribly bothered by it but you know since we're reading it now more critically than when it came out in a sense and I can imagine all of this stuff bugged Chris Claremont as he progressed as a writer, and that's probably why it was all revisited, as you mentioned. But I well, kind of, with my stronger memories, my stronger memories of the X-Men are from the very late 70s and the early 80s. Everything seemed 
much more believable by then to me. In my, we'll see when I get to those because I plan to reread the whole Chris Claremont run. Yeah, I'm sure Chris, Chris Claremont's talked about this at some point, but I wonder if he's really angry or if he viewed it more as like, and now he had time to get there. Because very clearly, like the X-Men were a throwaway. This issue just right. kind of had to be done as a shot in the dark to make it happen. Right. right. And, no, they made an editorial decision. We need this team made up of an international group. Let's make it the X-Men. How do we quickly throw it together? Um, yeah. So. And, you know, Le- it's weird because Len Wein has been the creator of major, major characters. Uh, Wolverine, Swamp Thing are the two that you know jump to mind as characters I've loved at many times in my reading experience. Man Thing? I think that was Gary Conway or Roy Thomas. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. Um, or maybe even Marv Wolfman. I'm not sure. But um, but anyway, Len, uh, but Len Wein has done a lot of great stuff in terms of things that went on to be great, but I don't ever remember loving a comic written by Len Wein. And maybe that's sacrilege of, on my part. I don't know. I never, as a kid, he was always someone who I th- viewed as okay. Like I would get excited if there was a Doug Monch comic or a Bill Mantlo comic or a Roy Thomas comic. I would not get excited when there was a Len Wein comic, but I would not throw it away. I would not turn it down either. I mean, I hear you. I have a, I have a super soft spot for giant size X Men one. Um, there's just something kind of like fun and happening with it. And even I remember reading this as a kid a number of times, and even then thinking like, this is kind of hokey, but also kind of realizing like, you know, I wanted more here or there, but thinking like, okay, well if they did everything I was thinking of, this book would be, you know, this big. And I was thinking. Well, yeah, that'd be great, but also, you know, they can only do so right. much with an issue. So, the sin of chapter one. Yeah, and in a way, they even point out the flaws in all of this. Like, the characters don't really want to come with Professor X, but then they do anyway. And then when they put on their costumes, they say, uh, you know, well, actually, they say they've never seen costumes like this, but I feel like they're almost pointing out that the costumes are kind of silly looking. And I never knew that the X-Men's costumes were constructed from unstable molecules, <laughs> just like the Fantastic Fours. But anyway, so that was an interesting tidbit. I, I don't know if that's held up as canon, because they get yes. torn apart a lot. That's a good point. Especially Wolverines, right? And um, Cyclops a lot, yeah. So then the plot develops that the X-Men... The original X-Men went off to this island after Cerebro found a uh, incredibly mutated... Uh, Cerebro, the device that that mm-hmm. um, finds mutants around the world, found an incredibly powerful mutant on this island. So the re- original X-Men flew off to the island and something horrible happened and only um, Scott Summers' uh, Cyclops returned, but with no memory of what had happened. And that's why Professor X has recruited a new team, so they can all go back to this island and rescue the X-Men. Which again, because I had my critical hat on, rather than reading this as a child, I'm like, wait a minute, he just told everyone we need to save the world. Now it turns out we just need to save our fellow X-Men. Now he turns out to be right by the end of the comic, this saved the world, but or maybe it saved the world. 
Yeah. Well. So there's just a lot of a lot of stuff where you have to just sort of give it to them. Okay, so this is just a little hyperbole never right. hurt the uh motivation. So they go to the island. As always, their um I think their airplane blows up, does it? Maybe not. It gets swallowed. I thought. Oh, maybe that's it. Um, anyway, they go down to the island and they eventually discover that the island is a living island, that all the different things on the island came together and kind of mutated. But not not like a human mutation. It's more like a Gaia kind of thing, but just on one island, I guess. It's Krakoa, the mutant island. Well, you take it for granted, but in this comic, it's just an odd thing. Uh, it still is an odd thing, a mutant island, I suppose. It's a fun, kooky idea, but I mean, it's such a creative thing. Like, you know, we found a really powerful mutant on the island, and then you realize it is the island. What? True. That is very... Again, Len Wein comes up with kind of cool ideas, but maybe the um, the uh, development of the idea in the comic written by Len Wein is not very sophisticated. So that this mutant island just forms monsters and attacks people. And eventually we discover that um, the mutant island has a building. And inside the building, it's sucking the, the powers out of the previous X-Men that it captured. And it released Scott Summers after erasing his memory to lure in more mutants. So exactly what it gets from the mutants. And eventually it wants to take over the world. So it's just... You're pure evil monster. You mutate, you get intelligence, and you say, what should I do with my intelligence? Oh, yeah, take over the world. I mean... And then they eventually defeat defeat Krakoa in a spectacular way by creating a great thunderstorm and using Polaris's magnetic powers powered by the electricity of the thunderstorm to uh, disrupt the gra- gravity, the gravity the local gravity of the island and send it flying off into space which kills it um apparently until it doesn't <laughs> and that and then at the end so they've rescued the x-men and they're flying back to professor x and they say you know what are we going to do uh with what what was it 16 x-men or whatever the number is yeah well we'll fix that tooth sweet yeah. I do want to mention that this Krakoa, and it's a lot of it resembles Ego, the living planet. So it's a variation on the idea that was already done by Stanley and Jack Kirby and Thor. Or at least that's how I my take on it. But it's still kind of a cool idea and a fun a fun idea. I mean, yeah, I I feel like Krakoa grew into something more eventually, but in this right instance i know i see what you mean so yeah and it um in a modern comic i guess this this story could stretch over a long period of time and the whole defying gravity and sending it out out into space is done in uh, two panels um and the final panel with krakoa dying in outer space is just this teeny tiny panel (laughs) and uh, dave cochran usually puts about eight eight or nine panels on every page lot of very small panels yeah telling the story moving it along i mean it's appreciated and i feel like i read this at the time but i'm not sure i sure didn't but 
I don't think I thought it was a big deal. I mean, I did not think this was the beginning of great things the first time I read this. I could see that. It's a fun issue, but it doesn't necessarily feel momentous. But I mean, they are introducing a new team. But I don't think the weight of that hits until you're a little further along in the issues we're going to talk about. You know, you were kind of critical of the Roy Thomas writing in the X-Men that we read that kind of were preceded these issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, this Roy Thomas is a far slicker professional writer of superhero stories than than Len Wein is or than early Chris Claremont is. So the, the to me, the flow of this comic and the way the action and explanations of things unfold is very clunky. I think Weenie is more fun. I mean, it uh, is clunky. You're right. But I, I just feel like there's a virtue in a lot of the flaws. And there's so much happening that you could be more critical of it. But I mean, when you're swept up in the motion moving along, it's like, oh, man, they're fighting an island. How are they going to beat a freaking island? I oh, mean, they booted off the planet like <laughs> what I, it, it there's a just a kind of like a charm and a craziness to this issue that i enjoy but i mean if it was every comic everything like this i i don't feel like it would be as fun i think there's something here because they're doing so much table setting and there continues to be some table setting and then um we move on so like so the the Roy Thomas comics we read were 1969 and this is 1975. I feel like, I feel like writing in comics was more sophisticated. At least most comics in 1975 compared to, uh, 1969 and they're actually wordier, I believe. Um, and I'm just, I was kind of surprised to realize how wordy this was compared to Roy Thomas in 1969. But anyway, I won't belabor that point any further. Uh, I think it's it's kind of a likable, fun comic that you can't tell that anything special is going to come from it. Yeah, there's nothing about the characters at this point that feels so standout or anything. No, nothing of what's to come is really born here. It just happens to be the first, I guess. And obviously, I mean, there's the the assembly, but I feel like 94, um, we see some interesting diversion from this issue already. 94 is, well, it has this incredible cover where all the X-Men seem to be either coming out of Count Nefaria's mouth or falling into his mouth. I'm not sure which. Mm -hmm. I have a, it's a cover by Gil Kane. I have a feeling someone in the office must have adjusted where Count Nefaria's head was put so that they could show the logo or something because I can't imagine Gil Kane drawing something where the guy's mouth is in that position with storm over his mouth. <laughs> yeah. I... That's that this this cover, because it's such a famous comic, is one of my bugaboos. It just always struck me as a really odd cover. But so you detect something very different in this. So this is this is part one of what I have read what would have been uh, uh, Giant Size X-Men number two. Okay. Let's double check the credits. Um, you're right. You're right right there. Chris Claremont, writer, 
Len Wein plotter editor. So mm -hmm. it's their their terminology is very loose. Like a writer, he literally wrote the dialogue, but he didn't plot it, or does he have something to do with the plot? It's hard to say. I, I don't know, but I, I find these first few moments because the first chunk of this comic is, like I said, a lot of table setting. So first chunk the, now of this second issue, this number 94. Uh, yes. I don't know why it's second necessarily. I mean, I guess. Yeah. Um, second issue of this of the new X-Men. Right. I was just um, clarifying because I thought I wasn't sure which issue you were talking about having table setting. Well, they both do. Right. Um, but I we we start right off and Sunfire's gone. Right. Basically just, hey, I'm an angry character, so I'm leaving. Yeah. And then there's some talk to get uh, Banshee to stay. Uh, some talk about the O5 leaving, except for Cyclops. Yeah. Except Jean Grey's back in and, two and issues. And Beast, Beast is already gone. So the ones leaving are... Three of the original five plus Polaris and um, I was forgetting Havoc. Havoc. Uh, Scott's brother, which makes right. that weirder. And they're saying, well, they're they're grown up and they've all been trained. Although really Polaris and Havoc haven't really been that trained. But again, I'm being Mr. Picky Pants. Well, you have a point, though, but it's kind of like out with the old. In with the new. Right. Let's Sands just. Sands a little bit. Again, because I think it was plotted by uh, Len Wein, it's, it's on the nose, right? When he was gathering the group, he just gathered the group. When he needs to get rid of some people, he just gets rid of them. You know, whatever. Let me make up some reason. And they go. Without a whole lot of explanation. Where are they going? What are they planning? What? You know, they're just gone. Hey, we've grown up. We're leaving. Bye. Right. And so. We suddenly have new X-Men, and our only holdover is Cyclops. Right, who's staying as their leader because he can't go out in the world because his eyes are too powerful. Well, it's funny because he's the tortured mutant that can't leave because his condition makes it so he's obviously immune, which is funny now because he's considered one of the mutants that can go about. He just has to wear right. glasses. But Well, uh, the way Stan Lee always set him up is that his power was so great and so hard to control that at any moment he could lose it and, you know, cut people in half all around him at the restaurant or wherever he happens to be. Right. I, but it's funny as we keep going, because what ultimately becomes is he becomes the straight man. And through the issues we're going to read, he's kind of, he's supposed to represent the reader, the controlled guy that you want to be. And then Wolverine's kind of an antithesis to that being like, the crazy wild guy who the girls tend to go for whatever like it's it's just funny to see that dichotomy come up and how that kind of starts and whereas cyclops is just supposed to be the good puritanical guy i guess it feels to me like len ween just wanted a superpowered leader in the field not just professor x sitting back at the mansion in his wheelchair and so Kind of the way um, in Star Trek The Next Generation, they decide to have Captain Picard and Commander Riker. Who So Commander Riker goes off and has the adventures. Um, that's how I view it anyway. Which, ironically, well, since Captain Picard became Professor Xavier. But. Well, also, I mean, Picard would often go off into the field because 
they would make uh, up excuses for it. Yeah. Well, and there is this thing about it was the major bit of protocol he'd break, which is interesting because Professor Xavier tends to supposed to be behind, and then he'll show up in the field at times at weird points so that they can drive the dramatic tension, especially in these issues. So. Right. Well, anyway, um, the eventually the basic plot develops that this bad guy who they faced once before in the old old days, uh, Count Nefaria, is taking over a military nuclear missile base, and the X Men are called in to go help out, and so they fight uh, Nefaria and his anti men which I think are a total new invention of this issue, but they aren't explained very well. Well, is there the older issue, but... um, They've appeared before? I thought so. I thought it was in one of the older issues. Um, I couldn't find them. I've been looking through the older issues. I found Karnt Nefaria. He previously used another group of superheroes to Uh, battle the X-Men that were not at all like... They were more the standard. They were the eel and the unicorn, and they they were kind of standard Marvel uh, third-tier villains. Okay. So what I found... I thought this was super bizarre, because I'm coming to this like, oh, X-Men, but they're being called in as like a superhero group to go fight these goofball whatever against this fuddy-duddy man. Right. I, this is so bizarre to me. Yeah, they could be the Avengers at this point, right? Yeah. The military like, says, hey. The D-list Avengers. Yeah, we can't get... In fact, I think they say they can't get the Avengers. Um, maybe... Did the Beast, in fact, put them in touch with the X-Men, maybe? Because he's now an Avenger. I need to... Maybe you wouldn't stoop so low. By the way, in other comics before this, Count Nefaria is a member of the Magia, the Mafia, the Marvel Mafia. The Marvel Mafia. That but for some reason, he dresses like a count from the 18th century um, and, and is shtick. now, for some reason, has a bunch of um, for mutated, evolved, super-powered animals, men. Did they ever do a Magia, like, big crossover thing? Because, like, at this point, who would have been in the Magia? Like, the Shocker, this guy, like, uh, Hammerhead, like... Right. <laughs> I'm just thinking of, like, all the people are supposedly in this group, but I'm like, do they ever, like, meet and, like, have a summit or something? I'd love to see that. All these villains, like, bickering right. at each other. and yeah. My take, again, is this is... This was originally a, a Len Wein plotted giant size issue. He was just looking for some villain that no one else would care about, that he could just create an adventure, a sort of generic adventure out of. But uh, it has a certain pizzazz to it, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's a fun enough 1970s comic book. It just didn't feel like I was reading the X-Men at all. Right. You're reading the Avengers. <laughs> yeah, so then the story continues in the next issue. And it's not a hoax, not a dream. This issue in X-Men dies. Yes. Which, That's the oddest it, thing, actually, about this comic. Well, and it's so funny because we just ditched one, and now here's, like, they, they're like, oh, we have too many. He's like, hold on just a second. I'm going to get rid of one, and I'm going to get rid of another one. Like... 
it's just so sudden. I, I find it funny. Yeah, there. So, for those who haven't read it but are happy to be spoiled, um, in the second half, they get shot out of their airplane and they fall. They manage to get inside the military base and fight the Animen and uh, against the clock because these missiles will just go off as a security precaution if anyone takes over the base after a certain amount of time. So they're fighting in the clock and they stop Count Nefaria and Nefaria is escaping on an airplane and Thunderbird kind of randomly sacrifices himself attacking the airplane, even though Banshee keeps telling him, I can stop this airplane. Um, and so he and Nefaria blow up together. And to my knowledge, Thunderbird never came back. Well, so what hit me about this was that Thunderbird's doing it because he like feels the need to prove himself because he's been so cocky. And then he sees right. that Cyclops is leading the team and doing all this. And he's kind of stoic and cold in a bit just because he needs to manage and pull through and he's dealing with all this nutsoid stuff. And uh, he, he kind of has a bit of a realization he wants to like put up and do his bit. And then Banshee's yelling at him like, I can deal with this, but he... He's not really planning on, like, making a noble sacrifice. He's just trying to, like, ride out the danger and do something. So it's really foolhardy, but it's, like, noble at the same time. And he I, hasn't I just been very developed, right? Well, no, he's been in two issues. I wonder what, you know, since it was plotted by one person and then scripted by the other... Would did Len Wein have a different explanation for what was going on here? I mean, Chris Claremont was kind of put in the position of, oh, I've got to explain this. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know, obviously on that end, but I, I just thought the way it's handled is kind of interesting because it's almost like Thunderbird gets fridged for Scott, but, uh. His brother, I think, takes up the mantle and comes back. Oh, he does. Okay, that rings a very faint bell. Because thunder, there is a Thunderbird in X Men. Now I saw you on or Twitter calling it a fridging. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's a very minor one because it doesn't really motivate anyone a whole lot. Well, half the next issue is Cyclops dealing with the death of well, this death and moving forward. That's true. He feels terrible. But it's not like he's motivated to go fight some particular bad guy or do anything in particular. I guess it's supposed to be a, a moment of you're, being a, you're a leader of a team and one of your members of your team dies on your watch. Even though there was nothing you could do about it because it was his own foolishness. Well, but I mean, it was a sense of morality and the sense of him needing to be a better leader, even though kind of realizing he's already doing everything and like everybody was pushing this and it was senseless um but in a way he feels responsible because they kind of let this someone who hadn't really proved their mettle out in the field and doing this and i feel like if this was written at all later with any of the undertones that came to cyclops later this could have had a lot more impact because there's a lot later especially in the bendis run which is obviously way later with cyclops about the idea of him having been a child soldier and so here you get kind of weird echoes of that, but now he's a bit older and he's the leader. And so dealing with that, I feel like it have some cool echoes, but they're not quite there yet. And 
Right. And I, in a weird way, you're jumping ahead to what Claremont does the next issue, because if you look at this issue, it's all about Professor Xavier's reaction to the death of Thunderbird. With those nutsoid eyebrows. Yeah. Where he is in psychically in the flames of he's right there with Thunderbird when he's dying. Um, and also uh, uh, Banshee is traumatized. I begged him, laddie. I pleaded with him, but he wouldn't get off the plane. He wouldn't get off. And Cyclops just says, I know, Banshee, it wasn't your fault. Right. I suppose it had... I'm not sure who's saying this. Maybe Cyclops. I suppose it had to happen sometime. Hell, sooner or later, it happens to all of us in this business. It comes with the uniform. Now, that is kind of... Especially for the younger audience at the time, that is a cool message. You know, everybody's time is limited. It's not something kids coming into reading superhero comics usually think about. I mean, now people die all the time, but they also come back. But. Well, and I think the the door had just been kind of cracked for some meaningful deaths in comics. And this is interesting because they have a meaningful death here with a character that you wouldn't necessarily expect. But it's not like a long established character or anything. So you're not going to have this huge fan reaction. My omnibus reprints the letters pages. Oh, okay. And so whatever issue, you know, it's many issues later, people are responding to this issue. And American Indian writes in and says how upset he is. He was so excited you had an American Indian character, and then you killed him off right away. And the um, the bullpen, whoever writes the le- answers to the letters, which could be anybody, uh, said... Well, he wasn't a very good character, so we, we were looking around for a character to get rid of, and he seemed the best choice because he wasn't a good character. <laughs> Which seemed a little insensitive to me, to the American Indian, who was so excited that there was an American Indian character in there. Well, also, what a BS. Like, none of these characters were good yet. They hadn't had any time. True. Like, at this yeah. point, Nightcrawler, the most we've gotten out of Nightcrawler is a few lines and his intro. And... So I'd love to know, I'd love to see an interview with Len Wein, say, what what were you thinking when you killed off Thunderbird? Because it really wasn't Claremont who killed him off. I mean, I really feel like it has to be shock value, right? Like, here's the X-Men, we're getting off to a boot, we're another issue in, and oh, we're killing one of them. Right. Well, and another, if I remember correctly, most of the giant size issues were quarterly. And so you as a writer you might be thinking well i should put something big in each issue because they're not coming out very often um, mm-hmm. i don't know that's just a thought so as you've been mentioning in the very next issue in number 96 to a large part it uh, chris this is the first issue chris claremont plots and writes so it's the first claremontian issue really and right. A lot of it is about the grieving over Thunderbird. And um, somehow the grieving frees a demon. If I, I never, un- I don't understand how this demon. So Cyclops is out in the woods, but his eye blasts um, take out this uh... tombstone or something. Right? Yeah. And that's what does it. But I mean, look at that page right there. I mean, look at the face. Right. The... It's a very intense art by Chris Claremont. This is one of those times where, uh, not by Chris Claremont, sorry, a very intense uh, by um, Cockrum, Cockrum, Dave Cockrum, um, 
Yeah, I'm always I'm all over the place with Dave Cockrum in terms of what liking or not liking his art. And also, we should note here, uh, plotting assist by Bill Mantlo. So I mean, oh, again, interesting. So it's still kind of a group effort, right? Uh, I I missed that. Yeah, with a welcome plotting assist from boisterous Bill Mantlo. Mm. And now Marv Wolfman is the editor rather than um, Len Wein, uh, which may or may not have any significance because I feel like Marv Wolfman was a much more character-oriented writer than Len Wein also. So this is this issue starts in what would be from kind of a, a Stan Lee, uh, Roy Thomas way of writing a very bad way. It starts with let's see, like four or five pages of the character, I guess four pages of a character thinking and grieving with no real action going on and no real forward movement of the plot. Now on the very last panels, we see some weird smoke cloud, which will eventually mean the demon has got by, got, got out. Right. And then we move quickly to the introduction of Moira McTaggart. Right. Which, again, I wonder, did Claremont and or Bill Manilow have a plan for her? <laughs> oh, I mean... She shows yeah. up to be their housekeeper. Mm -hmm. My name is Moira McTaggart, I, and I have been engaged as housekeeper here by... I can't do a Scottish accent, so it seems to come out Southern, by Professor Charles Xavier. Do you want to make something of it, then? Um... <laughs> And initially, she becomes the romance interest of Banshee, which I found I didn't remember that at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So instead of... So in this issue, eventually the demon shows up and they have a big fight with him. And that's the main plot of the issue. But instead of rushing into the plot, he's setting up Cyclops' psychological moment, spending a lot of time on that. Then he's setting up Moira Metagart showing up, and then no more really about that for the rest of the issue. Then he sets up a villain for later issues named, um, what's his name? I should know his name, but it's not appearing right here. This guy in white. Do you remember his name? Or is that... Um, he eventually I'm turns spacing. out to be the guy who is is reviving the Sentinels for no right. running Project Armageddon. I think in this, are we maybe it's the next issue we're shown him killing the other people in the military who who may or may not believe in his cause. What is his name? Spacing it, sorry, but yeah, just, I uh... usually they tag people by name very quickly, but mm -hmm. um, so they set him up, but that's for future issues. Um, mm -hmm. And then they, to me, this fight with the demon, the whole demon thing is just kind of ridiculous, and. It feels, I don't know, like Claremont doesn't yet. It's interesting to me because to me, he seems to both be setting up things for future issues, but not really having a good plot for this issue. But maybe you feel differently. Yeah, I mean, this one is a little goofier. I don't feel like we're quite there yet. But I feel like the idea was to exercise the demons. Like, I feel like Claremont's maybe a little too on the head right now. And isn't quite the level that he's going to get, so. Right. That I mean, this is his yeah. his very first fairly solo issue. <laughs> and what he 
I think he's doing something based on the fact that horror comics were popular at the time. So he kind of gives this demon that shows up a kind of Cthulhu-esque thing when Charles Xavier tries to read its mind. He sees, you know, unimaginable horrors deep inside hell and the shatterer of souls and all that stuff. Mm. I think the the other notable thing about this issue is we see how powerful a storm is shown to be. Well, I guess she was also in giant size in a way. Yeah, but there was something here about her standing out from the rest and able to take on the supernatural foe. I think it stands out a bit more as opposed to her power set being what's needed. Because even in giant size, it's like her and Polaris and what's where here you get the sense of, oh, she's able to summon lightning kind of at will. Like the idea of her power is a bit more shown. And this is, I think this is our first clue. I No way would I have caught this at the time or from this issue alone, but just knowing the whole run, our first sort of clue that Chris Claremont is particularly interested in female characters. And so he wants to bring her to the fore more. Well, and there's also that little panel there with, you see like the Shadow King and some of that and some of what's to come with her. So he clearly has some stories in mind that he's going to get to, but that wouldn't really come through yet. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then in the final panel, we do see um, how the military men who were dealing with that guy who does the Sentinels uh, end up dead. But it's, I think without the hindsight of knowing this is the beginning of an important run, it's kind of a mess of an issue. And yet with that hindsight, you can see the beginnings of Claremont, it amazes me that basically in his first solo issue, he's already working towards what will eventually become really good stuff. Well, and I think to be fair, and I thought there was a huge jump in the writing with um, 97, our next issue, which is really his first full solo. I, I agree. I agree. So in <clears throat> before I kind of thought about the the Count Nefaria story as being not really plotted by Claremont, I thought, wow, Claremont's first three issues were very weak. But but I can't really, now I realize I can't really blame those two Count Nefaria issues on Claremont entirely. Um, and this issue seems, in a sense, from just a purely writing structure view, even weaker, like he's groping about. And yet, it it blows my mind that this kind of beginning writer who gets this cast-off comic, is already thinking about long-term plot threads. Yeah, I. Uh, it's kind of crazy. And I mean, we have something here in 97 that becomes this big deal, and I know where it's headed, but at the time, like, it's kooky crazy pants. Yeah, yeah, let's go to 97, because there he really is um, making huge a huge leap the comic opens with Professor Xavier having a vision slash dream of... Oh, that's bonkers. Sorry, I'm just looking at it, and the colors on your page versus the one uh, I'm looking at are different. So, um, well, this is the... Let's see, how does it look in my book? I think it looks pretty close to my book. Yeah, it looks pretty much the same as it does in the Omnibus. So it's probably the same files that were used in the Omnibus. 
And you're probably looking at scans of maybe the original comic. Yeah, th- that's something I wanted to touch on here too. Um, I read some scans and I read some issues because I actually I own a few of these issues, and I've been trying to fill out my uncanny run to um, include Claremont's run. But when you start getting to this point, every issue is uh, yeah. So I I'm I'm getting closer and closer. I'm almost through uh, 150. And then down would be where I don't have it. So I'm. I might have some in. of those I can give you. I'm really happy with this omnibus. Um, so I think I'm yeah. going to stick with the omnibus approach to Claremont's run. I, I hope all of his runs in omnibuses, and maybe it isn't. I mean, not all yet, right? So what we're talking about here is Claremont's having this vision dream where he sees insect like uh, spaceships battling in outer space. And he's saying, you know, get out of my mind, all that's holy. And we know we're we're viewing Shi'ar stuff. But that this is issue 97, and none of these plot threads even begin to become the major plot thread to until issue 105. So that's... And this is a bi-monthly comic book. It only comes out six times a year. Well, and, I mean, now that doesn't even sound as big, but, I mean, these were just con- rolling issues. They weren't, like, right. arcs. Right. And these are um, these are comics back when people didn't, didn't expect long arcs, and they didn't know that they were going to buy every issue. Um, Right, but this would be the first issue. If I, I missed this issue, I think I read those other ones at the time. This would have been the first issue where I go, "Oh my god, I've got to get the next issue." <laughs> so it's kind of sad that I missed it, but but yeah, it blows my mind. Look, because I mean, they devote a splash page and then a double page spread, um, and then kind of a reaction page to this at the beginning of the story that then develops into a plot of someone mind controls Lorna. Is that her name? Lorna Polaris and havoc. Someone mind controls them and has them attack, attack the X-Men at the airport as they're saying goodbye to professor X, who's going off on a holiday or so he says. And Jean's there, even though she took off earlier. Absolutely no explanation. Jean Gray's back. Yeah. And Which I, is the better way to do it, really. <laughs> except except that it undercuts the whole dramatic goodbye gene kiss. We won't see each other anymore. We're being separated. That's, I, that's thrown out the window by Chris Claremont because he wants the female characters in the story, I think. And he's obviously got big plans for Gene, which one sort of suspects he already is thinking about it in this issue. Yeah, I don't know if we're quite at Dark Phoenix plotting yet, but yeah. Uh, but Phoenix, I think he's already yeah. thinking about Phoenix. Oh yeah, because that happens as of what, issue 101? Yeah, when issue 101, and the events um, starting in the next issue are all part of setting that up. And in a sense, it was set up in the previous issue where that character, who the Sentinel character, who I can name it, we can't remember, first shows up. <laughs> and... Yeah, no, I mean, there's just so much happening. Um, It's crazy. So it's a good, well, it's a weird comic because it begins with three pages about a plot that is never mentioned again for the rest of the issue, which is very weird back then. 
And, um, and then we have Scott Summer's brother attacking him, Alex Summer attacking him along with his girlfriend, Polaris. And we, we have a sense they're being mind controlled, but the X-Men, I don't think, maybe they do find that out because this guy, Eric the Red, shows up. Which is doubly weird, because as they point out, Eric Thread was a guy Cyclops did to help train the other X-Men right. upon the time. And so this Eric Thread popping up at Cyclops is like, what? Craziness. Yeah, and and the issue ends at a kind of standstill, and the bad guys, who are possibly good guys being controlled, fly <laughs> off. Mm-hmm. And um, with a little fight between Cyclops and, and Wolverine. So we're getting the beginning of that. But the implication is, next issue, we're going to get more about, about these two important characters who have been brainwashed and are attack, attacking. And yet we actually won't see that for many, many issues to come. <laughs> So again, this bi-monthly comic by a kind of new writer has this huge dangling plot. Mm-hmm. And actually, can you, you can probably see on my screen here this final panel. We see the guy um, who, who is the Sentinels guy watching them on a monitor and realize he's being watched on a monitor by someone else. I'm on issue 105 now. I still don't know know who that someone else is. Do you? No. It's a hand with almost a maybe a spider symbol on it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Must be Spider Woman. Spider, a very masculine Spider Woman hand, uh, monitoring the the evil Sentinel guy who's monitoring the X Men. I mean, it's very striking, but. I don't, well, I'll see as I work my way through the omnibus if they ever get back to that. But there's a huge sense, especially if you don't know that Crowdmount will get back to a lot of this stuff, of endless dangling threads. Because we have the, the Sentinel guy dangle. I don't think we even know he's a Sentinel guy yet, dangling from the previous issue. Now we've got Eric the Red and Polaris and Havoc. And this mysterious red-handed spider guy all day. And we have three relationships with Cyclops kind of informing the plot. um, Because he's our central character at this point. And we have building up with weird alliance within the team with Wolverine kind of being the internal antagonist. And Storm backing up Cyclops in this little bit. Like, there's team dynamics, there's the plot, like... We were talking about how the first two are kind of kooky, but I mean, in this issue, like suddenly so much more is established and it's so much more intriguing to think about what's next. Right. I mean, if you, unless you really want to read the next issue by this point, (laughs) which I think will then become true for every issue after this. Yeah. And although there is a part of me that now that I've, I've read up to 105 is irritated that I still know nothing about this guy with the red arm and i think uh claremont gets better about balancing you know how much is delivered at a time and how long he holds on to a thread um there like this is still rough but this is the first issue that felt claremontian to me Uh i agree i agree so so at first i was thinking you know boy it takes him a long time to become claremont 
But really, this is the second issue where he had full control, or rel- or maybe even the first issue where he had full control. Right. And beyond that, too, like I'm sure he was still earning his chops in some respects, and uh, going where he was going with this, he probably had to fight some editorial bits to where they were willing to experiment. A little with. bit, but it is well known that in the 70s, uh, Marvel was a bit of a madhouse with constantly changing editors, and most writers were kind of given free reign to a, a large, a much larger degree than they ever have been since. Hmm. Uh, especially compared to the way they are now, where editors really control things. Okay, um, but but I'm sure you know him being a, a newer writer, with the editor being you know three years older than him, there was probably some discussion of what are you doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I don't. I guess we're probably going to go to issue number one hundred. We're up to issue number ninety-eight here, which I did buy this issue as a kid because I love the Sentinels and they were on the cover. And Dave Cockrum draws the Sentinels really well. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, these are good classic Sentinels. Yeah, but Neil Adams drew them very well, and and Jack Kirby drew them very well too. There, I, I think they're a brilliant design, which we can hand to jack kirby they're just so menacing looking and <laughs> disturbing and their size difference to normal human beings is also very disturbing yeah no, there's a lot in the way their eyes are drawn and whatnot their mouths their endlessly frowning mouths and the cover says the sentinels are back enough said and they're right that worked for me i, I picked up this issue as a kid and, and there we go the all new all different or does it say it on the cover yeah, all new, all different. Right, and that's all new. I like that, all new, all Because they were. Well, they were not all different, because now it's Gene and Scott. Yeah, but it does feel different with them kind of being the head of it all. And if you move forward a couple pages, we get a fun little insert. This one? Or? Yeah. Oh, right, because it's a, almost like a title where the Sentinels have returned. I was talking about uh, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee being in those oh, top two Oh, right, panels. Jack, that was odd. Um, Gene, and, and, um, Gene and Scott are kissing, and Jack and Stan are just wandering behind them. And, of course, at this point, Jack and Stan were not friends. <laughs> but Jack says, hey, Stan, you know who they were? I tell you, they never used to do that when we had the book. Ah, Jack, you know these young kids, they got no respect. Which, (laughs) I don't think Jack and Stan would be too upset about the two of them kissing after all these years, but who knows. Right. It's a fun little to-do. Yeah. Um. Well, I think this, uh, the panel at the bottom of the same page so much gets my attention. I think it's a great comic book moment. Where the Sentinels oh, yeah. announce themselves as they rip their way through a wall. It can't be them, not them. But it is. Prepare to face your doom, mutant, for the Sentinels have returned. So even though they're emotionless robots, they like grand entries. <laughs> I mean, they're boisterous. <laughs> it's fun. Now, one thing is, um, well, other than the demon... 
so far we're getting kind of recycled plots, right? We're getting Count Nefaria returning. We're getting, um, you know, a battle with Havoc and this Eric the Red person. And now we're getting the Sentinels. So maybe there is where, uh, maybe by choice or there at Claremont, is getting instructions tie this into the x-men that the previous fans of the x-men will know um, even though most of the characters are new the villains are all familiar maybe um although there's a twist on the sentinel idea that i feel like they wanted to set up the classic to have the big reveal that leads into a hundred so yes so um this issue involves a lot of fighting with the Sentinels. Oh, there's a really cool panel where Sentinel is being blasted by Scott right out of a building. I think this is one of uh, one of um, Cockrum's better issues, maybe just because he has so much fun drawing the Sentinels. And so a number of the X-Men get kidnapped by the Sentinels. And, I, is it at, and, and at the end of this issue, we see them escaping only when they escape, they discover the Sentinel base that they're escaping from is in outer space. So the issue ends with them looking like they're going to asphyx asphyxiate in outer space. Right. So that's quite a cliffhanger. Um, and then the other interesting thing about the issue is uh, we find out that Professor X's holiday is... Um, well, it's interrupted by the Sentinels also, but Professor X's holiday is with a uh, leading astronomer who's trying to figure out uh, the images he's been seeing in his visions and where that star system might be. So we get that right. thread continued a little bit. Though, in some ways, I do still feel like we're playing with X-Men as the D-list Avengers rather than like representatives of the community. Right. Which... It works a little better here because we're building relationships and there's more direct connection, but it's still kind of building to the way I think of X-Men. Right. Well, because you think of X-Men as existing in this world of mutants, whereas the old idea of the X-Men, which is still the main thread here, is the X-Men are a superhero team who are mutants, and so one of their many problems is the mutant issue like the sentinels coming to get them but they have other adventures and heroics and their main goal is to be a team of superheroes who save the world every now and then and fight bad guys although the i mean even if you look at um those issues you didn't like by roy thomas there was sentinels which led them to a mad scientist who was helping them out because he's was supposed to be sympathetic to mutant problems and then they go to the um lost world or the the world of dinosaurs kazar's world and they encounter um, magneto who's making new mutants so to speak uh creating mm -hmm. mutating the cavemen and other people who live in the lost land um so there that thread of it being about mutants was in my opinion again already being developed by roy thomas near the end in a way sure but the 
there's kind of a method mode when you get to Claremont once he's hit his stride. And we're not quite there yet. And so, I don't know, it, it just, it feels different. It's still just a different era. It, it's still building on the past. I mean, you like to think oh, yeah. it's a break from the past. I like to think it's a continuation of, of what was already being built, perhaps more haphazardly than Chris Claremont did. But um... yeah, it's I mean, it is a continuation. And I mean, and eventually it moves and evolves in a different way and becomes that. But it, it, in order to become where I'm thinking of the X-Men more, it takes years of building. Right. Which is amazing that one creator got a chance to do years of building and that from the very beginning, he was starting to weave in threads that could be built upon. Um, again, in a world where comics usually pretty much concluded by the end of the issue, especially if it's a bi-monthly comic, they might have some, they might have some two-part stories and they might have some, uh, soap opera threads that continued for years, but they, but the, uh, the bigger plot threads usually wrapped up very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, but this guy, Dr. Lang, that's his name. He's kind of interchangeable for Trask, who the originator of the scent, or yes. Trask's son, who appeared in those issues mm. we talked about in our previous episode. Right. He's just a bad guy. In fact, he's more of a bad guy. Like Trask, Trask's son had this wanting to revenge his dad and then turning out to be a mutant himself. This guy, Dr. Lang, he's just evil. He just wants to destroy mutants. And he's happy to kill any humans who get in his way for that. Yeah. And somehow he has a outer space um, lair, hideout. <laughs> kind of James Bondian, I guess. And what's funny is you're relating this to the uh, to the old older stuff that we read. But in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, this is also very similar to the Hawksbox story we read. You know, they're in space dealing with the robots with, you know, these evil robots that are doing whatever. Right. And, when, and Roy Thomas sent the robots off into space in their previous appearance, although mm -hmm. they went to the sun. So, yeah, yeah. All, I mean, this is kind of a little bit of a nod, although apparently these are a different set of sentinels that Dr. Lang has made. And they're not as intelligent as the previous sentinels for some reason. So I'm thinking those previous Sentinels who went to the sun are going to come back somewhere, but I don't know enough. <laughs> I can't pull all the threads together. I mean, Sentinels keep getting built in different various forms throughout. So yeah, yeah. I like that the, the, the X-Men that are captured escape themselves because no one knew what, or, or the, this uh, Dr. Lang and his Sentinels did not know what Wolverine's powers were. And so he was able, I don't know why he waited so long, but he was able to cut through his bond, his metal bonds with his adamantanium uh, claws. Well, because he had to go into that berserker rage. Ah, right. Gene had to get slapped by evil Dr. Lang, and then uh, Wolverine was ready to escape. Yeah. To my knowledge, Wolverine doesn't yet have adamantium. Well, I can't say that word. Adamantium? Adamantium claws. Um, or they've never said, or maybe they did they say that in Hulk 181. I don't know. 
I don't. Um, so I'm still no not idea. clear what his powers are, other than he has these claws that can cut through metal. Um, and I get we may have been told that he he can smell things like an animal, but we may not have been told that yet. He's hairy. Anyway, it's a fun scene when he breaks away and foils the villains. Lots of good fighting against the. Um, but it's funny because he's still a bit player. Well, they're all a bit bit players, aren't they? Yeah. It's hard to. There well, except really... for Cyclops. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it it did catch me by surprise that they were in outer space. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's it's a. Well, and I like that too because too often now we have characters running off into space, and it doesn't feel like much of anything but here the idea of them being in space is fantastical and fun and there's more weight to it yeah now i think i've lost in my uh screen share i think i've lost the next next comic i mean that's fine i i mean we're not going to really end it out because these stories keep rolling from one story to the next so we don't have right. really a definitive endpoint, but the the big twist ultimately is that that these new X Men need to fight the old X Men, but the old X Men are like Sentinel versions of themselves. Right. So yeah, in the issue, I mean, um, issue ninety nine, Death Star Rising, we basically get a lot of fighting with Sentinels, and concluding with the, a splash page of X Men versus X Men to the death. Where they where we see the old X Men facing off the new X Men on this space station, mm-hmm. and then that's also the cover of X Men One Hundred. Although Professor X, yeah, Professor X is also there, and eventually we discover there are a bunch of X Men robots. So, from a historical point of view, the most it's not really very important that they fight robots of themselves. <laughs> it's really what happens at the end of the issue when they're escaping. And Jean Grey sacrifices herself to get everyone. Everyone else gets in the shielded part of the space, the, the, the spaceship, and she goes in the part that's being exposed to the to the sunspots or the sunstorm, and um, and gets, you know, potentially dead. Mm-hmm. Dead So, and of course. Uh, we all know, unless you don't know, <laughs> that that's the beginning of her uh, death and rebirth as the Phoenix. Right. So it feels like, like I don't know. I, I would love Claremont to have written a a chapter by chapter notes of all of these books. Now, um, it feels like he knew for many issues that he was heading towards turning Jean Grey into the Phoenix. I mean, I think he did, because we get there pretty quickly thereafter. Um, It's just, it's fun to have these characters that are doing these different things. And to me, um, this is such an enjoyable thing to come back to. And I kind of just wanted to keep going for a bit, but I'm in the middle of another long read through. But this is just, this is like the protos of where I really started enjoying X-Men and the public did too. So 
it's really cool to come back to this and see how, in a lot of ways, how very modern it was, but also how it was kind of setting the footprint for how comics would be. It's also very stumbling. not modern in a lot of ways. Oh, that's true, too. I it's mean, so many caption boxes of description. I don't know. A large part of these fight scenes is just fight scenes to have fight scenes, right? There's not the whole bad guy in this sequence of three issues is that Dr. Lang and there's no, there's nothing to him. He's just evil for, he hates mutants and that's it. Right. And their defeat of him just feels everything about their, to me, their battle with him feels generic. It's the, the visuals are cool. And Dr. Lang dies because he just he's in this hovercraft shooting at them and then he crashes into a wall. And that's the end of him. I don't know if he ever came back. I'm sure he does. Does this character, um, this physicist who helped them go into space, does he show up more? Well, he was a Hulk supporting character, wasn't he? Oh, was he? No, I didn't recognize him. Later on or in the past? Well, I thought he was the one with uh, Xavier on the boat. Yeah, the, he is the one with Xavier on the boat, and then he he's connected to NASA, so he helps them get in a spaceship so they can go up and rescue the other X-Men on the space station. Oh. I don't know. I just know he's off from the Hulk, yeah. too. So there's more of a Hulk-X-Men uh, connection at this time than really? you think. I mean, with Wolverine and him. wish I could remember his name so I could look him up, because I, I just I... don't remember him. And then a handful of issues, they're fighting the Wendigo, so. Which, yeah. that ties back to the Hulk and Wolverine, I guess. Right. But in a lot of ways, it's still, so there's this, to me, there's this sophistication of interesting threads and the character bits are just beginning to be dropped. Um, mm-hmm. But But there's also a lot of rawness and amateurness almost even again like i say compared to the silver age writing um it's it's clumsy and it's like it's feeling its way around in my opinion no it is i mean it's it's not quite fully baked yet but we're seeing it kind of come to fruition and there's something fun with that whenever you see some of these big creators and you kind of watch them go through their work and you watch them improve as creators it's really interesting and it's harder usually to see that in a writer but here we're seeing some of that and it kind of comes through yes and it's fun to read right and knowing what we know it makes it particularly fascinating. Right. But uh, it seems just like an amazing gamble because at any moment, Chris Claremont could have been taken off this book and then all of these threads would have just never had any meaning or would have had some much less meaningful meaning. Yeah, I'm guessing he probably felt some confidence because the X-Men wasn't a property anybody would want at this point. And if he was given a chance to kind of build it up, and he did, you know, it became this whole other thing. And so he did the right thing. In a way, he did what uh, Adams was trying to do, was take that least popular property and build it up into the biggest thing through his creative genius. 
Right, and Adams came in as a star, um, whereas Claremont came in as no one really cares. You know, you're the office assistant. Why don't you take over this thing we're too busy to work on and it's not important. So it looks like it only became um, monthly in issue 112 in August 1978. Mm -hmm. And it started in 75. So there were um, three or possibly three and a half years of um, of it just being a bi-monthly, which meant it was a very, very edge case book. One, well, it could well be that the creative talent on it were split between other duties, so they weren't looking at trying to do it until it became more of a success. So well, every that, inch but, was but earned. Everything was by the sales figures back then, right? It wasn't decided on by editorial. Right. So if 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 it was selling well, they would make it uh, by monthly. If it was selling badly, but they thought it had some chance, they would let it run by monthly for a while, like. Uh, when uh, Frank Miller started on Daredevil, it was bi-monthly, also a similar case in the sense of a book that no one cared about, so he could redo it any way he wanted. Right. Yeah, definitely. So when did you, what was, I seem to remember your starting point might have been with Jim Lee X-Men, is that right? I mean, that was my first X-Men comic, yeah, which was some of claremont's last for well for a while until he came back but when he came back there was a lot less attention on it on his a lot less a lot less Um, because did he come back while um grant morrison was doing his run or something like that i think it was like just following um and x-men had just had uh austin on it which is considered one of the worst runs of x-men and then claremont came back on did he come back on the main x-men title or on a different (laughs) x-men title on uncanny and he introduced um x-23 in there and there's some notable stuff but it just didn't i don't know it, it i didn't realize it was that until i started collecting um uncanny again so it's so interesting. You, so you went from the end of Claremont's run to you mentioned you read Giant Size when you were a kid. Did you and go I, back and were there? I guess there probably were already trades of um, these old issues. Did you go back? How did you end up reading X Men number one Giant Size? Well, so I wanted to read um, Giant Size X Men number one before I knew what trades were or anything. And at my comic shop, there was this what i found out was a reprint at the time i didn't really care it was just this right. comic i wanted it would probably cost like eight bucks or something which to uh, me at the time was a fortune yes but i, I wanted did. that one uh so i got it i think i got it at a bit of a discount because they're just mm-hmm. being nice to me and uh it's been in my collection forever this this old uh reprint it has like a silver frame around the cover wow it says Marvel Milestone Edition, and that's been the copy ad. I looked it up uh, not too long ago, and that reprint in and of itself is worth, you know, 60 bucks or something. Oh, wow. Impressive for a reprint. Yeah. So, because um, probably the print run was for the day not that big on Giant Size X-Men. Um, right. So then 
from there, did you? How did you get to read these other issues? Or, or was... I haven't read them before. We we're uh, preparing for. So this tonight. is your first time, except for I read. Um, was it ninety four? Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I read ninety four recently, um, like a few months ago, because um, at a Black Friday sale, uh, my comic shop was selling older, bigger issues for half off whatever they were in the bin and that issue the copy i got that was you know mm -hmm. a reader copy uh it cost me like six bucks or something i thought oh here's some old claremont issue of x-men cool i'm definitely gonna grab that for six bucks whatever i bring it home look up i'm like this is the first claremont issue what <laughs> how did i land that and so i read through that a while ago and i've read a few smatterings of issues as i've been slowly amassing them um i recently made a big push to try to uh get more of my claremont because right now i'm, I'm at this point where i have this kind of swiss cheese stuff in the early numbers and i really want to try to track down a handful of more issues because then i'll be able to read starting at one random issue and just go um, and then I'll, I have uncanny up until around 460 something. But you, you have read dark, the dark Phoenix saga before, right? Multiple times. Yes. So where did you pick up around this issue? 101 or a little later? Well, dark Phoenix is until much, much later. Well, I know, I know the actual dark Phoenix, but once you start reading dark Phoenix and you say, well, what about all this other stuff? Yeah, I, I, I have a um, Rebirth of Jean Grey uh, trade as well, but I kind of had trades and a few random issues, but I haven't read a lot of it, and I've been wanting to, so I've been pushing for it recently. Well, it, this was a lot of fun, and I'm just going to keep going. I mean, I have the first two omnibuses, um, so. All right. Well, there you go. Jean Grey is dead, but she will be back, as we will be. And next time we're going to read, I, assuming it's still your choice, uh, the first story arc, I guess, of Michael J. Straczynski on Spider-Man. Is that correct? Yeah. Do you happen to remember off the top of your head the numbers of those? It is Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, Issues 30 through 35. Okay. So if you want to read along with us, uh, we've got that. Thanks for sticking with us. I have a feeling this was a long time. Yeah. But we had a good time. Yeah, it's great. We'll be back. Cheers, everybody.